This episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast is brought to you by Tony Robbins Results Coaching. Are you ready to experience an extraordinary quality of life? Or maybe you're already doing well, but you know you can take your life to a whole new level. To do that, you have to set yourself up to win. You need a process, a way to consistently grow and produce the results that you need. That's what a Tony Robbins Results Coach can do for you. Whatever area in your life you want to change, your relationship, your health, your career, your business, coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. Tony Robbins Results Coaches are hand-selected and trained by the master of coaching, Tony Robbins himself, to have the skills that will empower you with supreme focus, powerful insight, and the accountability needed to achieve everything you've ever dreamed. To help you get started, Tony is offering podcast listeners a free results coaching strategy session with one of his top coaches. It's a $200 value, and you're getting it for free. Visit TonyRobbins.com results. Schedule that free session today. Hey, welcome back to the Tony Robbins podcast. It's Tony's sidekick, Mary Buckheit. And we're going to cut right to the chase today and throw it to Tony for part two of the commemorative John Wooden interview from way back when Tony sat down with his beloved mentor some 20 years ago. We hope you enjoyed part one. Thanks again for listening. I'm sure you could hear in that first half of the interview how emotional Big Tony becomes just thinking about John Wooden. You know, Coach Wooden passed away in 2010, so it's been six years now. But this man and his legacy is still so relevant and so very much a part of the current coaching conversation. As we mentioned in part one, Tony's pal Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is writing a book now. It's called Coach Wooden and Me, and that comes out next year. Just last week on October 14th at UCLA, just like every October 14th at UCLA, devoted Bruins celebrate their hero with John Wooden Day on the anniversary of his birthday. And then last month at Purdue, which is Wooden's alma mater, of course, and his home state of Indiana, they unveiled a statue of Wooden outside of Mackey Arena. But what's cool is it's not just a statue, his iconic pyramid of success is also chiseled behind him too. So the veneration of Coach Wooden's life and his teachings absolutely still continues today. And we thought, what a better time to give folks a window in and a chance to listen to his voice and hear for yourselves why John Wooden's philosophies are so time-honored and they continue to be revered and modeled and passed down still today. So let's get to it. Listen to Tony Robbins interviewing the great John Wooden in the second half of this two-part interview. Enjoy. If you use the bench and and don't don't antagonize them. You can't antagonize and get positive results, in my opinion. So you've got to do it in, in manners that you try not. This particular one of the greatest boosters I have. Wow. And uh, yet... Because they knew uh, you were fair. Him, yes, they must know that you're fair. Yes. They, they won't always agree, but uh, another thing I always try to point out, that when we when we disagree, do we have to be disagreeable? I don't think so. I yes. think we can disagree without being disagreeable. Gracious sakes, if we didn't disagree on something, we should be terribly monotonous. And we're <laughs> well, somebody's different. not necessary. Yes. There's never a disagreement, right? <laughs> I interrupted your flow, though. You were saying the other things that you really look for in a player. You were saying the unselfish attitude was where you were. Well, first, the, uh, the quickness uh, yes. from a physical point of view and the unselfishness uh, yeah. for uh, the overall. They're the two main things. Yes. There are a lot of other things. You say you're looking for size. Well, 
Yes, but like people say, I've had people say, wouldn't you like to have uh, two Al Cinders? And I said, no, I'd rather have Al Cinder and Mike Warren. Yes. A 510 and a 72. Yes. Rather than 272 or two 510s. Yes. That gives me balance. So I'm always looking for balance and trying to balance things out. Now, all coaches want the same thing. You want them big and quick. Yes. But where many of them would give up some some quickness to get more size, I would give up some size to get more quickness. I mm-hmm. wanted my guards to be quicker than opposing guards, my forwards to be quicker than opposing forwards, and my centers to be quicker than opposing centers. I didn't expect my centers to be quicker than opposing guards and so on. Right. But um, uh, that's the one thing more than anything else that I'm looking for in a prospect that has the grades to get in UCLA, that's the first thing you always look at. First is, can he get in? If he can't get in, I don't care how good he is. He's no good that's right. <laughs> as far as you're concerned. Right. What was the creed that you gave them? One was to be unselfish, but I know you had a creed that, just like the one you carried for yourself, that you reiterated, I think, at time and time again with the players. Well, I'm not sure of, of what you're referring to there, Tony. Okay. I had different things, little things that I uh, put on the bulletin board from day to day. Uh, at one time, I gave all my players a notebook. A very, uh, I had a lot of things in the notebook, and I, I, I noticed that it was getting a lot of dust in the lockers, uh, <laughs> some of them, so I cut that out, and I'd give them a little material day by day, and I had something of normal expectations, and that might be what you're yes, referring, that's what to. I'm referring to. There were just a number of things in there, to, like the one in the creed, make each day your masterpiece, and do the best you can each day, and and never criticize a teammate. I was very strict about that. No profanity. Uh, those things mean dismissal from the floor of practice. And uh, if you miss practice, you're going to miss playing time. Yes. And uh, uh, a number of things like that. Always compliment a player uh, that scores and not necessarily have to score for other things. If you score, never fail to compliment a player that maybe set the screen for you or gave you the pass or got the outlet off of the board at the other end compliment and i had a player one time say uh, I, i'd say don't run over and shake his hand while the other team goes down and gets the basket back <laughs> right. but, but you can give him a nod or a wink or a smile or a point and i said uh, one player asked me one time said what if he's not looking and i said i guarantee you he'll be looking if he's not i will <laughs> <laughs> that's great what was really the secret to your consistency? I mean, you won seven NCAA uh, AA titles in a row. You had teams, I think four of those teams, that literally had perfect records. They didn't lose a game in the entire season. I think you had three additional teams, only lost one game. How did you produce this incredible level of consistency? Everyone wants that in life. How do you create it? There's no secret at all. If there is a secret, it's to have the personnel that can do the job. Yes. Then the second thing is to be able to get it out of them. No coach ever uh, did it extremely well consistently unless he had the players. Now, I- I'm not naive enough to say that players are different in ability and coaches are all the same. Yes. Because coaches aren't all the same any more than surgeons are or writers are or commentators are. or People aren't the same. But no one, absolutely no one, can do it unless they have the personnel with which to work. And then now the big thing is to get it out of that personnel and get them working together as a unit and uh, make, putting, the, putting their own physical abilities to use for the group as a whole. That is the big job. And since every youngster is different, and thank goodness that's true, but the Lord saw fit to make it that way, we're all different, we're, we're, we're similar, so yes. similar, 
but we're not identical. Even yeah. identical twins aren't real truly identical. So that's uh, what the coach has to be constantly working toward is to try to analyze, study each individual, and then work with them accordingly. My college coach, I think I got that from more. Uh, he did a tremendous amount of just individual counseling, not calling you and talking to you for an hour, but maybe one or two comments on the practice floor to me, right. to this person, to this one, to this one, and things of that sort, and uh, which I didn't see at the time. But later on, I, I in, in retrospect, like a lot of the things my father did, I didn't see at the time. But later on, I see where it had uh, uh, it was meaningful. Yes. And uh, subconsciously, it helped in ways that uh, I didn't see and didn't understand. So um, I think in... Uh, and trying my best to not permitting them to live in the past, to take, in a sense, each day uh, as it comes, each game as it comes, and trying, working hard toward that one point in, in the creed my father gave me is trying to make each day a masterpiece. And that means just doing the best you can every day. You can't do more than that. Uh, I've heard coaches say he gave 110% or 120%. Nobody ever gave 110%. They don't have it. <laughs> you can't, 100% is perfect and no one's perfect. So you can't even get 100%. I had an interesting thing. I was on a panel back in Boston with uh, the late George Allen and Red Auerbach, uh, the famous coach of the Boston yes. uh, Celtics and, and myself. And George Allen was speaking and he said that uh, he demanded 130% from all his players for the Washington Redskins. And I said, um, uh, Coach Allen, I said, did you get 130%? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I felt that I never was able to get even 100% out of any individual. I was never able to get 100%. I was trying to get as close to it. I thought 100% was perfect, and I just want to know how you got 130%. And he said, uh, Coach Wooden, Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> You're messing up his rap. <laughs> Tell me, you told me what success means to you. What's failure? Failure is knowing that you didn't do the things that you should have done. Hmm. That's failure. And you're the only one that will really know. It's like character and reputation. You're the only one that really 100% knows your character. Your reputation is what others perceive you to be. And uh, it can be different from what one's character really is. And uh, so I think failure isn't looked at that way. For yes. example, success, uh, Mr. Webster tells us, comes from the accumulation of material possessions or the attainment of a position of power or prestige. I don't believe that. Yes. Uh, I think they uh, might be, I think they could be indications of success, but yeah. I don't, don't think they necessarily are. To my way of thinking, in my analysis, an individual is the only one that will truly know whether or not they're successful, because they're the only one that really knows whether they've made the effort to make the most of what they have under the conditions that existed for them and, and trying constantly to to improve the existing conditions. Uh, too much of the time, we complain about what we don't have. And as soon as we do that, then we're not going to make the most of the things that we do have. Yes. And if we make the most of the things that we do have, that's going to bring us more of the things that we don't have at the particular time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a tendency for us to do that an, an awful lot. So I, I think success lies, again, within the... Uh, 
within the individual rather in the eyes of others. I talk to people very often who have become quote-unquote successful by cultural standards, as you define it, and uh, some of which that are considered to be, quote, at the top. And yet, rarely do I find them very happy. And uh, often the number one thing they say they're looking for is the very thing you mentioned earlier, which is peace of mind. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give somebody who's, quote, made it to the top and still is missing peace of mind? (laughs) To look around for things that they can feel that they're really helping others. In some way, and there's always ways. For example, uh, in the history of our civilization, many wars have been fought and billions of lives have been lost because heads of state differed with others or leaders of some sort in regard to religion or race. Yes. And we know that's true. And uh, I think if those people in those leadership positions really had more consideration for others, those problems would never have been as severe. They'd always be problems. But uh, I think that these prejudices today, and they exist, that you and I, you, you, others, are all somewhat responsible unless each and every day we try to do something in our own little way to alleviate unjust prejudices. Now, people say, what can I do? As an individual, you can't do much as an individual, but boy, we're not individuals. We are many, but are we much? And we become much when we all contribute in our own little way. So I think uh, people that have uh, seemingly reached the top of their particular profession or are perceived to have uh, yes. reached it at, at least and don't have a peace of mind, it's because that they're always looking on the other side of the street. And I think you should always be uh, trying to do better. And no matter how well you've done, that yeah. doesn't mean you still can't do better. And you should always be trying to that. Although I know that there comes a time when we go downhill a little. We don't go uphill like that. We may go downhill pretty fast, but we can, we can slow it down to some extent. By constant demanding and improving upon ourselves. That's right. Right, that makes sense. Each and every day. What is a coach? Well, they've been defined as many things. They've been called many things. You know, <laughs> called by, many things is true. <laughs> by different people. But uh, to me, uh, what a coach really should be is a teacher. He's just a teacher. And he's, he's a teacher just as an English teacher is, or a biology teacher is, or a physics teacher is, or a math teacher is. He's just a teacher. He's trying to, to teach youngsters under his supervision uh, to... Uh, Uh, make the most of the abilities that they have in this particular thing and realizing that the individual abilities that they have are going to be meaningful to others Mm. and and not just for themselves. And if you become so uh, wrapped up in yourself and lost in your own narrow tunnel vision, lost in your own egos, which we all have to some extent, and I think our strength lies in in our ability to... uh, to keep our egos down. Yes. But I think we should all have some. We should all have a, a ego to some extent. It's pride, and we should all have some pride. But, but we should we, earn it. Yeah, that's right. We should not let it get get out of a, a perspective at all, which uh, the tendency uh, might be at times. How do you know when you've done a good job as a coach? Amos Alonzo Stagg was asked by reporters after one outstanding season he had well, aren't you really proud? Is this, is this uh, probably your best job? And he said, well, I won't know for 20 years. 
So it's what your youngsters do after they've left your supervision that really determines whether or not you have done a good job. On a smaller basis, not as meaningful, when you watch your team play, how they play, do they play the way that you've tried to teach them to play, coming close to that, you can judge, feel whether or not I've done a pretty good job. If you just base it on the score, no. I felt that we have been in games that we outscored our opponent that, in my opinion, we lost. And we've been in games where the opponent outscored us yes. that I felt we've won. We yes. did. We came close to our building. I, I, I did a pretty good job of helping them reaching the, their their maximum ability that I could expect at this particular time of the season. So um, I think that's your job as a teacher. In the mid-30s, I read something that said, uh, no written word, no spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. And Mm. that's what a teacher, a coach should be. I think a coach has a responsibility to be a model, to set an example, and those that don't, I don't, in my opinion, don't think they should be working with our youth. You know, I think one of the most important things to teach anyone and to be a model of is how to deal with disappointment because they're inevitable in life. And I think when most people think of you, Coach Wooden, they don't think of disappointment because you had so many victories. But the truth is you spent almost 16 years before you had your first national championship. And I don't think most people really think about those 16 years. Most people would give up or mm-hmm. some coaching careers are over in 16 years. No one would have known who you were. So how did you make it through those 16 years before you finally had a championship? And what happened to those 16 years? Did you continue to learn and grow? Is that why you created the momentum that created those 10 national championships? I'd like to feel that I learned every year. Yes. I feel that there were some years prior to our winning our first national championship that we would have had a a better chance to win had I known what I knew when we did win. Yes. And I think there was a time when I wanted to win. I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but it's the truth. And I wanted to win so much that I hurt our chances by perhaps overworking our players yes. or by trying to give them too much. Yes. And once we did start where we were winning national, now we won a lot of conference championships, and from the winning point of view, I had nothing. People didn't perceive me to be a failure. Sure. They didn't perceive me to be a failure, you know, Tony, until we won at one time two championships in a row, and then the next year we didn't win the conference. <laughs> then I failed. <laughs> And then we win seven in a row, and then we lose to uh, to North Carolina State in a double overtime in the final four, the champion who lost only one game all year, and then I failed. And then we come back and won the championship the next year, so I left as, as, as you know, being a winner. But had we lost that last year, I'd go back to a loser again. <laughs> I remember reading in your book, you said the more successful you become, the more criticism you hear, the more suspicious people are of you, and the more they expect, you know, from you, and they appreciate you less. So what... What advice would you give to people that are succeeding and in terms of how to deal with this? And also, how can people deal with disappointment? Because even though you were a winning coach, you still had disappointments. How do you deal with those? I asked you two well, questions, actually. Yeah. I dumped two big ones on you there. Well, that's another thing that I tried to get across to my players, that uh, at times they're going to be uh, receive criticism that won't be fair, won't be just, and you won't like it. 
and you're going to receive a criticism that really you deserve. You won't like that either. <laughs> but there are going to be times when you're going to receive a, a credit and praise that you really don't deserve, but you'll like it. Mm-hmm. And even whether you deserve it or not, you'll like it. But your strength, your absolute strength as an individual, in my opinion, will be on how you are able to cope with both criticism and praise. Hmm. If you let either one get out of hand, it's going to affect you in, in, in a very bad way. Don't let the good things go to your head and don't let the bad things defeat you. There's always another day and that the next day can be a good day or it can be a bad day and you're responsible for it. How did you deal with disappointment yourself? Because I know you had it. What did you do to keep that balanced? Well, I tried to keep it within myself and... Uh, uh, for example, um, if I'm trying to teach the idea to my players not to let either uh, their motions show, then I must try to do that myself. And I'm proud of the fact that uh, there have been various times when uh, Nellie, my dear wife, was interviewed. Uh, she said, John never brought things home. Yes. That he separated his profession from our home. His family came first with him. And I don't know whether that's uh, true or not, and I, I dare say it isn't true 100%, but at, at least I was pleased that she felt that way, yes. that I tried not to. Well, I don't know. Uh, perhaps my early upbringing, I learned to accept things and didn't get myself uh, too perturbed over the, the difficult things that would happen, but figured that maybe their type of learning and, and will be helpful to me in the future. I didn't do it 100%, of course, but sure. uh, I don't think I let disappointment get me down. So you try to learn from it, and you seem to have the ability to put it behind you rather quickly. Maybe because your focus was on improvement. I remember in 1960, you had, I guess, one of your worst seasons. Yes. It was like 14 and 12, was that That's the... right. That's my and, worst um, season. That pain that you experienced was kind of like the bench for the players, from what I understand for you. It drove <laughs> you pretty intensely, didn't it? Well, uh, Sam Balder, who was a sportscaster here, had said before that season, if UCLA has a winning season next year, I'll push a peanut the entire length of, of the Miracle Mile with my nose. <laughs> so when we finished 14 and 12, uh, in some sense, I might have felt better with that particular team than I felt with some other teams that maybe won a national championship. Perhaps they came closer to their potential. Yes. And I never felt, for example, while that's my poorest year of coaching, it definitely was not my most disappointing year. Yes. It's the poorest year from a one-lost uh, yes. point of view. Yes. But it's not the most disappointing year. But I had disappointing things. But uh, my disappointments were not so much uh, from things of that sort. My disappointments came through maybe knowing that I had failed with some particular youngster for some reason or uh, uh, something in my family. Those were my disappointments or disappointments in some players. When I, if I lose a player for some reason, that maybe it could have been avoided if I'd have handled a, uh, something a little differently and things yes. of that sort. Those yes. were my disappointments. And I just had to accept them, that I'm going to have them, and I can't let them affect uh, the future. From my understanding, in 1960, you really committed to revamping and improving everything you were doing, though, at that time. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it, it had nothing to do with that particular uh-huh. uh, season that way. It had nothing to do with that. As a matter of fact, 
I might have um, revised a little more my thinking after the end of our 62 year in which we made the final four mm. because I learned so much in that, uh, in, I think, in that year uh, in, in, in different ways that I hadn't learned before. And I did uh, make some changes then in my practice uh, procedures and uh, uh, limiting the number of players that I used until games were really won or lost. Now, from that time on, I tried to tell all players that there'll be seven or eight players that are going to do most of the playing until the game is, uh, the outcome is settled. Yes. But that doesn't mean those that aren't get to play aren't important. You are very important. The nuts and the, and the wheels. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and that's, that, but that's the job is to get them to believe that yes. and go along with you. So that's, that's the more difficult type of things that you, with which you have to cope. Tell me a little about your pyramid of success that you shared with your players. I talked to them over the pyramid once a year, before a couple of weeks before practice started, and asked them to come in and uh, discuss it with me if they had any aspects. And some years no one came in, some, some years some came in. But uh, the sort of uh, surprising thing is I don't think there's hardly a player that talks about it after he got out that said he didn't understand it at first, but he had found it most meaningful after. Not too long ago, Kareem Lewis uh, was uh, interviewed, and they asked him that question about the pyramid, and he said he thought it was kind of corny when he first heard it. And, yes. Uh, later on, uh, he saw it was a little more meaningful, and he began to see it a lot as he was finishing, but it had its greatest effect after he got out of school. Well, that's pleased me. Now, that derived from the fact that after I'd entered the teaching profession, I didn't like the way of judging the success of my English students. A or B was right. successful. Most of us are average, you know, and C is the average grade. And yet, parents seem to think that uh, a C is appropriate for the neighbor's children. <laughs> but but not for their own. And uh, if their youngster didn't get an A or B, either their youngster had failed or the teacher had failed. And yes. I just didn't think that's fair. I, I believe in the good Lord and his infinite wisdom didn't create us all equal as far as intelligence is concerned any more than we equal as far as size or, or appearance. We're not born in the same environments. We don't all have the same opportunities. And I didn't like that. And so I began searching for some way to what I thought could make me a better teacher and give the youngsters under my supervision something uh, to aspire to other than just a higher mark or more points. Yes. Then I think from my father's influence, I developed my, my uh, definition of success. Yes. And in 1934, I started working on that, and I put success according to my definition at the apex, and then I started working on the foundation. I, at that time, I don't know how many blocks I'm going to have in it or whatnot, but I did select in 1934 the two blocks that I selected as cornerstones, and one is industriousness and the other is enthusiasm. And I just don't think anyone can come close to, to reaching their, their level of competency unless they work hard at it, unless they like what they're doing. Yes. And I worked on this for the next 14 years on developing it, and I had many ideas, and some I discarded, and some I kept, but maybe placed in a different position within the structure, because each block is placed in a position that I think is important, like the foundation, the cornerstones, must be strong. Any structure is to have any strength, solidity must have a strong foundation, and of course the cornerstones anchor the foundation. But in between those, I placed three blocks that include others. And we include others who are adding strength, friendship, loyalty, cooperation. Yes. And then the next year, I put four blocks. I ended up with four blocks. Just when I ended up with five, then I started working up. The first was self-control. 
And the next one it was alertness, being alive and alert and seeing things are going around you. The next was initiative, not being afraid to fail, knowing you're not perfect and you're going to fail at times, but you'll learn from them. And then the, the fourth block was intentness, and that's determination or persistence and not giving up. Yes. And then in the heart of the structure, I had three blocks, and one is condition, mental, moral, and physical. Yes. And then the skills, being able not only to uh, be able to do what you're doing properly, but to be able to do it quickly. Whether you're a surgeon or you're an athlete or an attorney or whatever it might be, you have to do things quickly as well as properly. And then the third is listed as team spirit, and that's consideration for others and working together for the welfare of all and, and trying to put uh, yourself back of it a little bit. And then the next two blocks I have poise and confidence. There again, uh, to do well, you've got to believe in yourself, you have to have confidence. And you have to have poise, and, and I also coined my own definition of poise, which you've probably never heard. And, and I think poise is very, it's a very simple thing, and it, to me, poise is just being yourself. Mm. I think uh, you're not acting. Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're not acting, you're not pretending, you're not trying to be something you're not. Therefore, you're going to function near your own level of comfort. Now, these things all lead up to the last block, which is competitive greatness. Mm-hmm. Being competitive, you can't be competitive if you're afraid. If you, if you, uh, if you don't enjoy a challenge, yeah. but you you won't have competitive greatness unless you're conditioned. Unless you have all these blocks below leading up to it. Yes. And then next to that, uh, leading up on the apex, that's the last block. But from the last block, I have patience on one side. Good things take time, and the other's faith. Mm-hmm. Faith that things will work out as they should. And we're getting back to the question you asked me a little while. Go, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, we must have faith that things are going to work out as they should. But if we must do what we should do too, yes, we have to make sure we do our part. Right. Tell me a little bit about how faith has uh, shaped your life. I know that um, that you have deep religious convictions, and I know that you've consistently lived by those convictions. I wish I could say that I had uh, as much as you feel, Tony. I've tried. I have a deep and abiding faith that things uh, work out the way they're supposed to, which is sort of like we talked about a little bit earlier. Why, I don't know. But uh, in my particular faith, uh, the two commandments uh, sort of uh, tie in. The first one is, uh, there is the Lord whom you must believe in, and the second is the golden rule. Do unto others, you'd have others do unto you. Yes. That's briefly what they are. Yes, very yes. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or, or as you've referred to him, uh, Lou Alcindor, is when he played for you. Um, tell me, what was the impact of your relationship? I'm, I know you had a deep impact on him, but what was his, the impact of his relationship on you as well? I'm curious. I believe we learned from each other. I never had anyone like that before. From a physical point of view, and uh, not too many from uh, other aspects too. The background and so on. And... Uh, I had no realization of uh, what a tough situation it is for him at times when people would uh, make uncomplimentary remarks within his hearing. I heard one one time say, look at that big freak, look at that big black freak. How did so, he deal with that, and how did you deal with that? I wanted him to know by my actions that that was not my belief, and I was critical of those that had. And when I heard uh, someone make remarks, I would let him know of my displeasure of it and how wrong it was, but let's not judge other, as I told him one time, you know, you astonish people at times, and uh, sometimes uh, when we're astonished, we'll say things that we don't really mean, 
but don't think all people are like that. I believe, as I would tell him and I've told others, I think most people are good. I believe that. Yeah. I still know that we have to have penitentiaries and policemen and all that and laws, but most people are good. But I also know that there are uh, lawyers that are disbarred every year, but I think most lawyers are good. I know yes. that there'll be doctors that lose their license every year, and I think the Hippocratic Oath is a tremendous uh, thing that I've read. And uh, whatever the profession, most people to me are good, but not all. But let's not condemn all by the actions of a few. So some things happened along that line that I would talk with him about. First trip we made to one school in our conference, I always would be last out of the dressing room, and he he usually would come out last and uh, along with me, and he must have signed... Uh, I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say 30 to 40 autographs for youngsters. And then I said, Lewis, we must go. We're playing somewhere the next night. We've got to get on the bus and go. And he'd say, sorry to the youngsters. And then he'd walk away. In the big, and here would be adults, say, in, where here, look at the big so-and-so, too good to sign autographs. When That's all he'd been doing. Mm. I never envisioned that before. I didn't envision the fact that he can't have an aisle seat on a plane because his legs are too long. I didn't envision the fact that he can't buy clothes and you may have some trouble that will fit him yes. in uh, stores like most of us can. Yes. I didn't envision that the tables he's got to sit sort of on an end where he can turn sideways. I didn't envision the problems we were going to have getting beds at that time. Now they have many, many uh, extra long beds, but they didn't have when he played for me at that time. And sometimes we couldn't get him. We got a king-size bed and it's crosswise. And uh, sometimes put chairs and pillows at the end mm-hmm. to make them a little longer. Things like those Things of that sort. But the main thing that I didn't realize was sort of like man's inhumanity to man. The statements that would be made that he could hear. And I hadn't, I hadn't envisioned these things happening. So I learned. I think I learned more tolerance uh, in things. He was very bright, you know. Very yes. bright person. And uh, extremely fine team player and no problem at UCLA in any way. No problem in any way at all. Coach, what for you is one of the toughest times in your life, and, and how did you turn it around? The toughest time in the life that I've ever had is the loss of my dear Nellie. Yes. And that was, that's been hard. That was uh, six years ago, last uh, March 21st, first day of spring. You were married for 52 years? We were married uh, going on 53 years. It would have been uh, 53, our next anniversary. But we'd been sweethearts uh, since I was a sophomore in high school and she was a freshman. Uh, just one of those things. Uh, when we met, uh, there was just some sort of, I think, before too long, maybe without either of us realizing it, we'd fallen in love in a sense. Yeah. And uh, it never changed. And losing her was difficult. But uh, uh, what changed it around was not me, but others, my children and grandchildren and friends, uh, doctor, yes. uh, minister. I think all uh, led. For a year or two, I had a rough time. Then I miss her just as much as ever, need her, love her as much as ever, but I'm wrapped up in my great-grandchildren and my children, and yes. I go on for them. But that's been the toughest, most, most difficult uh, thing that I've ever, ever experienced in any way. What beliefs did you develop to turn that around? What new beliefs did you have about the situation? Did you develop any? I think prior to that, to some degree, I had a fear of death. Yes. I have none now. 
Wow. No, no. Why is that? What I'll be with her. Now? You'll be with what her. What other chance do I have to be with her? Wow. Is there any other way? No. I'm with her somewhat as I go around the room because in our condominium here, which she picked out and furnished, I have made a change. The only thing has been addition of great-grandchildren, which she never got to see. Otherwise, there's no addition, no change. It will not be, and I won't move. She really was uh, your coach, wasn't she, Coach Wood? Oh, she was a tremendous help. Uh, going back to our high school days, uh, uh, it might be hard for most people to believe, uh, but I, uh, as her parents said, that they had never known anyone as shy as I was. I was very shy. Really? And uh, she recognized this, and uh, she got me to take uh, speech and uh, public speaking in high school to try to help me. And that was difficult for me uh, to begin with, but it was of help, and it was good for me. And uh, she was of great help. And then uh, later on, when I uh, graduated and went to Purdue and uh, found it a little discouraging, uh, there were no athletic scholarships in those days. And I wanted to become a civil engineer. It was my ambition, and that was probably the reason I went to Purdue. And I didn't know that you had to go to summer camp every summer to get your degree in uh, civil engineering. And uh, I was going to have to work in the summertime. I knew that I couldn't go because you didn't get paid for that. It's sort of like uh, uh, laboratory, I was suppose you'd call it. And uh, so I, uh, I, I was blue and and down a lot. And she was her encouragement that uh, I might not even have finished school if. Uh, wow. And, and I had no problem ac- academically. I was a good student. And I'm, I'm very proud. Of, I'm more proud. Of, of my basketball playing, of the fact that when I graduated from Purdue, I received the Big Ten medal for the graduating athlete with the highest grade point average. I'm proud of that. Fantastic. And, and uh, more so than being a basketball player of the year. I, I, I like that too, but uh, the other one is more, much more meaningful uh, to me. Then after we were married, when I got out... Uh, you made it through the Depression together? and Yes, tough, but... Uh, she was understanding. She wasn't demanding about things. Things were not the most important thing in her life at all. What made her special to you? <laughs> to me, she was the cutest, prettiest girl in the high school, and I <laughs> saw <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> Why she's elected me, I don't know. But uh, uh, she was just special because of her understanding, and I, I, I suspect that earlier she saw, probably saw me, saw through me more than most uh, anybody else. And... Uh, my last year in high school, our high school coach uh, came up one time and talked to her mother and dad. And he was afraid, knowing that we were in love, that we might get married and I might go to school. And he said to her parents, now you wouldn't want Nellie and John to get married and, and John end up by, not that there's anything wrong with it, but maybe working at a filling station, making 18 or $20 a week, which wasn't too bad then, but... You wouldn't want him to do that for the rest of her life. And Mother Riley said that she thought, and she told us about this, she said, I thought, oh, if he can only make 18 or $20 a week, I'd be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, she was just special in so many ways. Uh, uh, she cared for people tremendously. Very much, yes. Uh, I, I don't believe there could be a better wife or mother than, uh, than Nellie. And she loved people. She was, she was good. She may have been your greatest success coach. Well, I'd have to say that. I'd go along with that, too. Yeah. <laughs> she believed. She was there. Uh, always there. Yeah. She provided some of that certainty that sometimes you needed yes. as support. Yes. 
What, what advice? I'm sure you guys had challenges in 52 years. Oh, of course we did. Um, what advice would you give people living in a society today where people think of a relationship as being long-term that's two years old? What advice would you give to help people to stick to it and make a relationship work? Listen. Listen mm. to the others. Communicate. Don't keep things all hidden. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, if you disagreed, don't be disagreeable. Talk it out. And, uh, of course, the final things, love. Yeah, it's always the base. Mm -hmm. What is uh, your most treasured memory? Things with Nelly. Uh, just various things. Uh, nice. are, the, are the most treasured. And then with our children and family. Yes. Uh, things are family-oriented are my, are my most treasured uh, memories. What do you value most in your life now? Well, I'm living for my family, my children and uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They have given me reason to go on and to do things and not become a sort of a hermit-like uh, person. And I'm pleased that so many of my ex-players are in contact with me and yeah. ask me about things. What are the most important lessons that you've pulled from this life that you think would be valuable to share with your grandchildren and to share with just people as a whole? So difficult to answer that, but I would say that among the things that I think are real, real important, and maybe I haven't lived up to them to the degree that that I should have, and that is that being concerned for others, being considered for others, the golden rule. Yes, being considered of others maybe covers a multitude of things. Well, they say there's a mystical law of nature that the three things that mankind crave most are uh, freedom and peace and uh, trying to think what the third one is. But at any rate, you can't have any of them unless you give them to others. Hmm. Uh, Maybe the third one's love. <laughs> yeah. You, you say um, there's many things along that line, little sayings that I'd like to pick up uh, here and there from... Uh, the vision of Sir Lonfall, but it's not what we give, but what we share. Hmm. For the gift without the giver is bare. Who gives of himself with his alms feeds three, himself, his hungering neighbor, and me. Wow. And uh, there's so much truth in those things. You can't live a perfect day without doing something for another, without any thought of something in return. That's wonderful. I believe those things. Not that I've lived up to them. Don't misunderstand me at all. Well, you've certainly, you've certainly pursued them on a regular I try, basis. I try. I know you've said often that something to the effect of that success is only the result of the lasting things in life. Yes. What's, what's your actual phrase? Well, man? on that is um, real happiness and success comes from the things that cannot be taken away from you. Hmm. And, and material things you lose. Yes. In time, you're going to lose material things, but it's the other things that are uh, that you never lose. Love. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Carrie Song is our executive producer. Strategy and distribution by Anna Yorg and Tyler Colbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Copyright Robbins Research International.